Today's episode is brought to you by Death Wish Inc. For over 20 years, Death Wish has been the go-to label for emerging punk and hardcore. That continues today with recent releases from scene staples and promising newcomers such as Modern Life is War, Greek Death, Chastity, Converge, Frail Body, and more. Get 10% off all Death Wish music and merch in their store right now using the link deathwishinc.com slash the first ever which automatically applies the discount and filters the site for all items included. Again, that is 10% off all Deathwish releases and merch at deathwishinc.com slash the first ever. Do you want a recommendation? How about gouge away burnt sugar? Today's episode is brought to you by Anchorfish Printing. Hey, are you in a band? Do you run a label? Or maybe you just want to make some merch for fun. You should hit up Anchorfish Printing. They've been taking care of bands for over 15 years. I first met the owner, Michael, when my band Touche Amore started, and he was our go-to guy. You can visit what they have to offer over at anchorfishprinting.com. You can hit them up for all your merch needs, whether it's screen printing, embroidery, or maybe you just need some stickers. Mention the first ever podcast and get 10% off your order. Hello and welcome to the first ever podcast. I am your host, Jeremy Bohm. This is episode 92. And if it is your first time here, this is a show where I interview artists of all kinds about the first experiences in their art form that led them to where they are today. Man, today's guest, Billy Werner of the band Seisha, of the band Hot Cross. Damn, right? Pretty exciting stuff. I uh, am so excited this conversation happened. And do you know what sparked this conversation? Seisha is playing reunion shows. Holy shit. They're going to be playing multiple nights in uh, Brooklyn at St. Vitus. And um, I just can't believe it's happening. I just cannot believe it's happening. It's happening in November. And uh, I will see you there on the 17th. I'm going to make it to that one. I, uh, I'll be on tour at the time, but there is a day off between Boston and Cincinnati, and you bet your ass I'm traveling. You bet your ass I'm going to be there. Um, this conversation is really cool. I, uh, I really appreciate Billy. Seisha was nice enough to honor me with the privilege of putting out their discography on vinyl back, uh, back a couple years ago. I'll let you know that the, uh, the, the repress of that is in, in the works, but as you know, vinyl plants are a disaster. So, We'll be announcing that as it gets closer to actually coming out. But um, yeah, this, is, this was such a cool talk. Um, Seisha means the absolute world to me. And if you are a first-time listener to this podcast, I want to let you know that if you go over to patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon right now, there is a bonus episode where Billy answered questions that were submitted by subscribers. That is a thing that happens if you uh, subscribe to the show. You find out about upcoming guests, you're able to submit questions, and then when the episode airs, there's that bonus episode where you get to hear the guest answer your questions. 
Um, it also helps support the show. Also, if you haven't subscribed to the show over on uh, Apple, iTunes, Spotify, wherever you're listening to this, that helps so much. And lastly, leaving a positive rating and review helps so, so much. All right, without further ado, here is my conversation with Billy Werner. What's up, Billy? It's nice to see you. How are you? I'm doing well. Uh, technologically challenged as always, but we're, we're hanging in there. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I appreciate you making it work. Uh, it's, always, it's always fun doing the troubleshooting. I feel like that's where bonding really comes together when you, when you troubleshoot together. Yeah, two singers, two microphones. We'll, we'll figure it out. Yeah, and you're holding the mic like a pro, too. <laughs> I've, I've been known to do this before, so. Um, so, uh, I mean, how are you? How are you feeling? I mean, it's been a pretty crazy couple weeks. Uh, the band announced that uh, you're playing shows. Um, I know it's the talk of the town right now. Like, uh, I, how are you feeling at this point? I mean, it's, I assume a little overwhelmed. I'm a little overwhelmed. I am. I've been, I, I've, as you know, I've been sort of a hard no on this for about 23 years at this point. So um, it's, it's surreal that it's happening and the response was not in any way what we anticipated. And I know people are all like, what do you mean? Like, how do you not know? But when it's like you're a band and you know the, and you're so sort of intimately connected to the history of it, it's... Um, it's it's startling to know that 20 some odd years later people are you know 4000 times as many people that were interested previously are interested now and sort of know what it is um so yes it's been an overwhelming few weeks yeah i mean i f i feel like you know when when we when our friendship started it was around obviously built, uh, putting out the collection together and, um, I mean, when we talked about that, I remember you, you being pretty candid about like, yeah, I mean, it's funny because when we used to play shows, we wouldn't play to all that many people. And now when you're going to be playing these shows, it's going to be probably the craziest shows you've ever played. Is that fair to say? It's fair to say it's, it's more than fair to say. Um, so we'll see, we'll see what that, what that feels like. <laughs> <laughs> how, uh, how were those first practices? You know what? It, the, fir the practices were way better than I think any of us anticipated. I think, you know, those guys are really nice and supportive and awesome. And, but I will say that I think the big question mark was me. Um, you know, wh when you play guitar, when you play bass, when you play drums, you sort of have, I guess when you haven't been doing it for a while, you can listen and get into it and you get those calluses back. And, you know, if you haven't been playing and that kind of stuff. But with vocals, it's a lot trickier because I haven't screamed in the way that, you know, I need to scream for this and, you know, since Hot Cross split up and that was, I don't know, 15 years ago. So in f for the last 15 years, I haven't played in a band, haven't practiced with a band, haven't played heavy music in any way, haven't screamed like that at all. So I think uh, I was really the sort of the question mark and, and I, I uh, you know, J Jamie's first comment was, wow, you sound like you did then. Um, right. So, so once I think, I think there was a more of a comfort level when it was like, okay, Billy can, Billy can still do that thing. Um, <laughs> and so I was surprised too, because I thought I, I was really, uh, anxious about what my ability would be. And yeah, it was I, like a muscle, it ended up being like a muscle memory thing in a way that I didn't really think it w was going to be. 
Right. I'm sure it reminded you of what it felt like when you first were in a band and you went to do vocals the first time where you're like, you don't know what it's going to sound like until it until you actually hear it. And yeah, I mean, how did it feel for you? Were you like, oh, it's still there? Did it like what was your thought? I don't know how candid I should be. Um, so <laughs> I, it, it felt right. It, I just kind of jumped in um, and, yeah. and, and it sort of just felt the way it felt. Um, I, I man, <laughs> I'll I'll tell you guys this anyway because why not? But the first song uh, we did the the we did the first song on the LP, which we just call the French song now. Um, right. So um, the fir- the as soon as I came in on that, I managed to like strain about seventeen muscles in like the lower <laughs> half of my body because I like I like clenched up like really tight. I was like, I'm just gonna f- fucking go for it and I went for it yeah. and I was like oh my god like I, <laughs> I, 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 I just like everything just got really tight really quickly and, and like um, you know like I said the last time I had to do that was 2007 and I was 30 then now I'm 45 right. <laughs> so yeah. you know uh, you, you start to fall apart in a lot of ways as you get older but, but that was startling to me where I was like wow I think I pulled every muscle in my body just like trying to do that again and then uh, uh, let me oh yeah, go, ahead. go ahead no no no, no that, that, no, that was pretty much it um, obviously Adam lives on the west coast how close are the rest of you for making this for making that practice happen like are you guys within range enough to where you can practice a little bit without adam like leading up to these shows yeah that's actually the adam's the furthest away um jamie and colin the guitar player and the bass player live in uh new york city still i'm in the philadelphia area i'm in like the philly suburbs steve roche who's playing drums this go round uh is um, in South Philadelphia. So we, we, are kind of split between Philly and New York and it's a two hour drive. So it's really easy. Sometimes even less than two hours. Um, Adam is the, is sort of the, the, the dark horse. He, he's out in San Diego, as you know. Um, and he's trying to find ways to get back. You know, it's really expensive to fly now, but just in general, you know, as you know, it's, it's really expensive to, you know, commute by plane, obviously. So uh, the way we're doing it is sort of everybody's working independently and then we're sort of choosing our spots where, you know, me and Steve and Jamie and Colin can get together. They're actually in New York today rehearsing. I couldn't get up there and I've got a lot of homework. Like, I I don't even need to be around those guys playing yet because I still need to learn (laughs) a lot myself. (laughs) So, yeah. um, so they're, they're actually playing right now. They've been playing all day oh, cool. and, and, yeah. and literally just before I got on for this, I was getting text messages from Adam and he's trying to get out here in June, um, to do a quick, like take a red eye sort of in and out and like do like an all day rehearsal on a Saturday. So we're trying to do that in June. So it's definitely feasible. I think we have to be a little creative and we have to be sort of independently motivated to work on our own. Because it's not like it was where, you know, I mean, you're in a band with, you know, your homies are, you know, all live around you. So it's like, okay, we practice like, you know, four nights a week or whatever it is. And then, you know, you don't even really think twice about it. You just have your practices and you go. So we've always, you know, previously we had been in that situation where we were all in the same place. So now it's just a matter of like being creative, 
you know, realizing that when we do get together, they're going to be long sessions. You know, they, they, it's it becomes like an all day thing. We'll we'll do like eight or ten hours. I, I won't right. I won't scream for eight or ten hours, but they'll you yeah know, of but, course but, not. <laughs> but we'll be playing for like eight or ten hours. You know, the ba- the band will like learning, relearning the songs and just sort of getting them tight. So it's it's happening. We're making it happen. And I think, you know, when you said before, like how's it going? What's really surprised me is how those guys are really fucking locked in. Like they are. I was really impressed with how good they just sounded as a band, and they gelled really quickly playing together. Yeah. Um, which is always, you know, as you know, that's sort of like the big question mark, right? Even if you're practicing on your own, it's like, is that chemistry still there when you're all in the same room, right? And that's a big deal. Like, that's like the, you know, in sports, you call that sort of like the intangibles, right? It's like the stuff that you can't, it's the stuff you can't practice. The chemistry is either there or it's not. So I think like the fact that so many years later, the chemistry just sort of happened, you know, we just we got in the room, we played the songs and we're like, Oh shit, that was the song. Like we did it, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, so it's that, that, that aspect of it has been, I think at least to me has been pretty surprising at how successful it's been. And I think that really was the catalyst for us to be like, shit, I guess we could like really do this. Like we can, we may as well like just see what happens. Yeah. And, and you know, aside from just even performing together, I mean, I mean, I remember when we started working together for the the compilation um, LP, I felt very privileged because it felt like I got to be a fly on the wall for all of you guys, even just really talking for the first time in a really long time. Like it's it from what I remember, it kind of seemed like the band hadn't communicated like that much since they since at least, you know, yeah, probably like 15 years or something like that. So even getting in the same room, was that your first time in the room with all of them in that long? With instruments, yeah, we had had um, the previous time we sort of broke the internet, but in a very minor way was we we were at um, just before COVID. Uh, it was like the like the summer before COVID. I had gone up to Adam was in New York, and I I basically just went up to see Adam and Jamie. Like we went out and got food, um, and we went to we went back to Jamie's house and hung out there and went like went in his basement where a lot of those early songs were written. Like before we practiced, before Seisha practiced in a studio, we practiced in Jamie's parents' basement. They have like this beautiful brownstone in the West Village. And we used to practice in the basement there. That's where like the demo was written. And so we went down there and we hung, like we went to Jamie, you know, visited Jamie's parents. I hadn't seen Jamie's parents for, you know, a hundred years. And so that was really the first time we got together just to hang out. Yeah. And, um, and, and that was really great. And, and I, the I want to say the discography LP was happening already at that time. Yeah. I think like that was in process when we just went up to kind of hang out. And then, yeah, this last time I was up there, you know, when we took that first photo of us in the studio, that was the first time we had been in a studio in 24 years, 23, 24 years, like being been in a studio right. together. So, and longer, longer with Adam there because Adam... Adam left the band in like 98, I want to say. So, yeah. so it was like even longer that we'd been in a studio with Adam. I, I know, you know, that was the only band I ever played in with Adam. So that was the only time, you know, we had been in a studio together was during the Seisha time. So just the yeah. fact, just, just all of that happening at once was pretty wild. Like it was, it was really, really crazy. Um, but, but again, it was just, um, we're all in different places in life, but, but our, the friendship, the, the the friendships are still there. I think the bond through the music is definitely still there. 
we sort of picked up where we left off. We're all different people now. I would say, personally speaking, I'm a different person much, much, <laughs> for much, much better. <laughs> much, much for the better. Um, and, and I think they, you know, everybody is, but I don't, I don't want to speak for those guys about, you know. Right, of course. <laughs> how they're feeling. But, but um, you know, it's just amazing that we were just able to sort of just pick up and go. Um, and so, yeah. and so, yeah, just knowing that, 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 that stuff that you can't fix in a practice is still there and maybe even feels stronger than it did because, you know, 23 years of perspective and experience just living, um, you know, the, those relationships remained really rock solid. Um, and I don't know that I expected different, but it still felt surprising that our lives were in such different places, but we were still able to be productive and um, really know each other, you know, really feel like, I really feel like I know those guys, no matter what has happened in the, over the last 23 years in our personal lives, independent of one another, you know, it just felt like, Oh, it was only 23 years. We've done, you know what yeah. I mean? Like we're just, <laughs> let's, you know, we could just sort of pick up. So, so yeah, it's been, it's been an amazing experience. And, and the fact that it just happened that quickly and it felt that good that quickly, we were like, all right, we're, we're proving to ourselves that we can do it. So let's just give ourselves a really long runway and see, see what happens. It's amazing. Well. It's amazing. I, I mean, I, you know, I can speak for probably everybody and say it's very exciting, you know, and, and I'm just, yeah, I'm, I'm thrilled it's happening. It's uh, it's really, it's, it's, it's something, it's something, you know, it's very, very exciting. It's something. Uh, and I'm, yeah. And I'm so excited that I'm going to be able to now make it to that first show. It's, I'm, I'm through the roof. I'm through the roof. I, I almost want to encourage you to go to like the third one. Um, no, but well, I can't. But you know, I, I'm saying, I, like, I, no, <laughs> I mean, it's just it's gonna it's gonna. Um, I, I, I'm I'm really optimistic, but I I I would lie if if I didn't say I had a lot of jitters. Um, oh no, it's good so as you should. I yeah yeah. It's, I'm, <laughs> I'm confident to a point, right? It's still yeah. it's still really nerve wracking, but I think we'll we'll get into the groove, and I think by the time. You know, I, I'm very optimistic that by the time that first show comes around, we'll be, you know, we, we will be, be very, very ready to go. Yeah. 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 And there's also something it's kind of funny. Uh, I don't know if you guys have talked about this where like, I'm sure when the band was active, uh, the equipment that you were playing on and the abilities were probably not as good as they are these days. So the fact that it's probably going to also be the best the band has ever sounded is going to also make it pretty awesome. I, ho I hope so. I hope so. It's funny. I... Uh, I think I, uh, Jamie, I think, is still playing like the same guitar and stuff. So I don't know that the equipment will have improved as much, but I think I definitely think we have all sort of grown into who we are, both as you know people and musicians. And you know, they, totally, those guys never stop playing. I mean, they stop playing Sasha songs, but they, they, you know, Jamie is Jamie's an incredible musician. Colin, ev everybody in the band, Adam, Steve everybody's been playing and you know, so they're, they have chop, you know, the chops are still there. It's not like they're picking totally. up an instrument again. So yeah, I, I am optimistic that we will sound, um, as good and, uh, hopefully f even more powerful, um, especially live. That's where we, re I think we really thrived as a band previously. So yeah. I really think it's going to be fun. And I really think that by the time it comes along, we will be, like I said, I think we'll be very ready to go and I'm, Love I'm feeling it. good about it. So, and and Fuck I want to yeah. say this too, so so that your audience hears this. You really, y'all really have. You know, those of you who are excited about this really have Jeremy to thank for this because honestly, 
Jer- Jeremy has sort of been like the 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 bug in our ear, and I don't mean bug in a I don't mean that in a pejorative <laughs> way, but but he's really been like sort of the guy that's been really pushing us, and and I think was a catalyst to a lot of these conversations even beginning, uh, and um, so that's so so I feel like we owe you know I I, I will say this independently, but I'm sure the band would agree that. Um, you know, we're really grateful that you came along and, and I was very close to just kind of like, I wouldn't say blowing off the email, but just sort of politely saying like, eh, I don't know about the record. Totally. I don't know about this, but, but I was like, you know what? Fuck it. I'm going to reach out to those guys. Let's see what they want. You know, I don't want to disappoint this guy. Like it was nice enough to write us. So let, let's see. And then, you know, here we are. I don't know. When did we start? What was that? Like 15, 16 Something like that. Yeah. I mean, and it took a while to, I mean, everything you just said is so unbelievably sweet. I remember reading an interview or something you had said where you were like, yeah, Jeremy just happened to catch me at the right, in the right mood at the right time. I I love it. That's, that's kind of life. You know what I'm saying? Like, that's you know there's there's the there's the the famous Gretzky quote of like you miss every shot you don't take or whatever. That's exactly like, right. Hey, so, sometimes you just gotta sometimes you just gotta try. And I believe it was on Facebook too, which is so lowbrow. <laughs> just like you know what? Yeah, you know, what do you think? Yeah. <laughs> oh man. Yeah, the world was so different then anyway. But even more, I mean, yeah, it's weird. It's uh, you know we have these. Yeah, that's just life. I don't really think there's anything else to be said about it. It's just you 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 it's exactly that you miss the shots you don't take i, I really like exactly that. Yeah. so I, I again appreciate it now now we can move on to talking about we can move on to talking about you because i'm so excited to hear this yes. stuff i actually don't i actually don't know this is are you from new york originally where are you from yeah so i was born and raised in queens new york and okay. the sort of um for people that know that area i was sort of in the bayside whitestone flushing like trying i don't even know if it's triangle but but i was in sort of triangulated between those three places in my upbringing um yeah uh spent my whole life in new york went to nyu as an undergrad and lived at home in queens so i was like commuting every day um it was actually during seisha that i got my very first apartment uh with with some, you know, with a roommate, you know, moved out of my, my folks' house and, you know, spent, spent the last year and a half of school, um, still commuting. I didn't live on, you know, it, downtown in, in Manhattan where NYU is. I, I lived, you know, I got my first apartment was in uh, what is, you know, as everybody's story is, you know, it was very cheap then, but what is now a, an extraordinarily expensive neighborhood in Brooklyn. Um, mm, yeah. Uh, uh, I, I lived in London for a year, and then I moved to Philly in '06. So from '77 to '06, I was a New, I was a New York City kid. My whole family was there, and my dad. Everybody got priced out. You know, it was a similar story. Pretty working class family. Um, so every once everybody was priced out of New York, they all split, and it was just me and my dad left in Queens. And my dad, um, I moved to Philly, and once I moved to Philly, my dad was like, I'm. I have no reason to be here either. So he ended up in Florida with um, most of, you know, my my yeah. my aunt moved down to like Fort Lauderdale in like 1986 or seven or nine or something. And so since then, it's been a steady drip of my family just ending up in South Florida, which is what you do when, you know, you're a native. Say, that's, yeah, that's what we do. That's the, that's, that's the New York story. I feel like everyone, everyone I know's parents end up, uh, end up always in, in Florida. Always in Florida. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. So let me ask you this. When you were when you were young, uh, what was the first thing you connected with musically um, that maybe you found on your own? Something that wasn't being played in the house, but something that like you connected with? That's a very good question. Um, interestingly enough, the first music that I connected with on my own that had nothing to do with my parents' record collection or my parents' interests was rap music. Um, breakdancing, I was captivated by all that stuff as a little kid. And it started in New York, that really started to pop up and gain sort of some media attention and pop, you know, obviously, you know, I was five in 1982, which is, which is probably when, you know, that stuff really started to make its way into mainstream culture in New York City, or at least get attention and stuff. Um, and when I started to see it, I was just blown away by these kids that were just dancing on linoleum and cardboard in the street. And I, I, in some ways, it reminded me of some of like, you know, the music that they were dancing to was a lot of like early electro and like funk and soul and that kind of stuff. And my parents always had like a Motown thing in the house, so it wasn't completely alien to me. But when people started talking over the music and the scratch, I remember scratching and the sound of scratching, I just found utterly fast i mean at that time it just sounded like music from outer space like there was nothing else that i had been exposed to that sounded anything like it so really the first thing that caught my attention was rap music and there was um two radio stations in new york city by 84 by the mid 80s 84 to 86 um it was really kind of a big deal like pre previous to that you had to kind of really find it there was a lat I remember at first there was a Latin radio station in New York City. There was this DJ called Paco. And if you look him up, if you Google pa you know, DJ Paco from New York City, you'll see that he was like a famous radio DJ on like, a, like la mostly Latin stations in New York. But he was the first that I heard play like proper rap. Like he played like Run DMC and like all of the sort of the early classics, Treacherous 3. I remember, I remember this on the radio. And I would make my mom keep the Latin station on in the car as a little kid because I would just wait for them to play like something that was rap. Yeah. Um, then LL Cool J broke and like he was from Queens. And so in New York City, it was very localized. And then you had two stations in New York that played hip hop at that point. One was 98.7 Kiss FM and the other one was WBLS, which is way high on the dial, like 10, I think it was like 108 or something like that on the dial, which always like <laughs> wow. yeah. stood out to me. But nonetheless, yeah. not to belabor this too much, but I would, I would sit with a radio, like a, a, like a kind of like a little portable boom box, and I've had these little tiny headphones, not like these headphones, but like those little tiny like round personal headphones that you only, like, you know, elderly people will have their little radio and those like little <laughs> tiny like quarter sized headphones over their ears. I had those and I had my little radio and a cassette deck and I would tape as much as I could put on a 90 minute tape. I would just hit record as soon as the show came on and I would record like those tapes and listen to those tapes all week. So I was big. So rap music for whatever reason was the first thing I connected with. I saw beach street in the movies twice. Like all that stuff was like very, very much my shit. Um, in the very, very beginning. And the first tapes I bought for myself were like the fat boys are back. Like, like, <laughs> like, nice. yeah. Like run DMC, uh, LL Cool J's radio, uh, all those early rap albums that, and now are sort of like canonical, you know? Um, I remember my mom was driving my grandma to like a doctor's appointment in like forest Hills. And I was sitting in the back with like a little radio listening to LL Cool J. 
So, like, I, I distinctly remember this stuff. So, so yeah, so it was, it was definitely rap music, and it was just sort of, like, the way New York was. It was, like, you, it was... Yeah. There was no, like... Like, New York City, there was no... There was, like, rock stations, and then everything else was, like... You know, there was a ton of black music that was available. You know, there was tons of Latin music, and it was just literally just squiggling around on the dial. You could find so much, and so I just sort of dove in headfirst with it and just became that was the first music i was really obsessed with like i wanted tapes all the time like where am i going to get tapes you know my parents were in columbia house so my parents you know my parents would have like toto and hall and oats and then like the fat the the fat boys (laughs) that's 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 billy's that's billy's selection this month right so right yeah yeah. so uh so then what was the first concert you went to that was way later that was a long time later so the first concert i went to on my own uh well not my own or it could just be because yeah, yeah which is the first my one. parents never it? took me to a concert if you can believe that which is really wild because they were really musical my dad like was a big like oldies like doo-wop record head guy my mom was very much like a beetle you know the, they, they were just typical boomers they had their like boomer yeah. tastes they never took me to a concert so it wasn't until i was 15 i saw you two Primus and the disposable heroes of hypocrisy at Yankee Stadium in the summer of 92. Wait, was that a tour you two and Primus? Uh, I don't know that you know what? I they I probably was tour. It was the it was the tour for Octung Baby. It was like right after Octung Baby came out. So it was uh, is 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 there a chance it was like for like a radio station? Because that just seems bizarre. Well, you know what? For me, from for me, it was bizarre that the concert was at Yankee Stadium. Like, the, like that just seemed weird. Like <laughs> sure. that seemed odd enough at the time. But but it was definitely you two on tour. I don't know if they did the whole tour with Primus, but but they definitely didn't do it with disposable hippo heroes of hypocrisy. I don't know if you remember them, but. I don't know. That doesn't this, sound familiar to me. There's this guy. Um, I want to say Michael Franti was in it. There's this guy Michael Franti. I think he was also in a band called like Spearhead or something. Anyway, okay. he uh, it was this it, it was this it was like sort of like politically oriented rap with like um a, a black dude and an Asian dude uh uh that were the primary members. And I remember like they had this weird stage show where they were like I don't know if they had a table saw or something where they would like smack it with some metal and sparks would fly everywhere and I was just like what is what is this? Um so it's like weird, kind of like avant-garde. It was, it was really, it was really <laughs> yeah. sort of out there. But yeah, they were called Disposable Heroes of Hypocrisy. I think they probably did like one or two records. It was, it's very much like this is the early '90s. Like you could, it's just, it just yeah. screamed like '92. Like if I didn't say it was '92, I would probably guess it was '92. Like it, would, but. They were very much that era. It's kind of funny that Primus plays after them, and you're like, "Oh, now Primus back to plays. Music. Primus plays after them," and I was just like, <laughs> "All right." And then, and then Primus played, and then yeah, they were in no way normal, but they did all the hits. They, you know, they, right, they exactly. played. Every, you know, I think "Sailing the Seas of Cheese" had been out already. So, yeah, '92. I don't know if it was uh, Pork Soda think, out yet. I think Probably. Pork Soda was subsequent to "Sailing the Seas of Cheese." This podcast is presented by DistroKid, an incredible service for musicians that helps you upload your songs to all music streaming platforms from iTunes to Spotify and Apple Music, then pays you revenue from your songs all in one place. They've got a really cool new feature called Splits that allows you to add collaborators so you can pay your co-writers and fellow musicians without needing an accountant. 
To get 30% off your first year's DistroKid subscription, just head to distrokid.com slash VIP slash hard times. I don't know if I know this. Did you ever play an instrument? Yes. Were you ever, or were you always just, what did you play? I, uh, I played the drums. Uh, I love the drums. Um, and I've, I've always been sort of rhythmically oriented more than melodically oriented. I, I, um, I took piano lessons as a kid. My mom was very... So my mom's side of the, my family is extraordinarily like musically adept. Um, my mom played piano and guitar and wrote music and sang music and could like she had this amazing ability to just play stuff by ear. She was one of these people where you play her a melody and she could just sit down and play it um, in the right key, like everything, just know how to sort of transpose it in her head and all this stuff and be able to just go. Um, and my, you know, my one of my uncles is uh, had done some, like I want to say he had done some co- like proper compositions, like um, was like a, a writer and composer. My other uncle was like a, is like a virtuoso drummer. I mean, he's incredible, and he really got me on the drumming bug. And he was he talked to me at a very young age about how. He's like, you know, rhythm is one of these sort of innate things. You know, there's parts of drumming. You can learn, like, how to hold the sticks and how to play. But if you don't sort of have it, like, in... He referred to it as, like, having that in you. And what he was referring to, I, I realized much later, is just being sort of just more rhythmically oriented and just sort of understand the way rhythm works and how to play behind the beat and... and you know how to how to like develop groove and and swing and and all that kind of stuff right which was very much um something that i heard in rap music right over the years and and funk and soul and that kind of stuff and and rock and you know john bonham and zeppelin and all that stuff like they they're always playing like a, it feels like they're a little bit off but they they're not really off they're just the the way they keep time is what gives it that sort of like funk it's like that gives you that head nod to be able to just play that to play like that is like so i think you have to have some sort of like innate rhythmic ability and so my uncle sort of recognized he was like i think you have that and so i really got into the drums in junior high school and high school and uh played in the school band and then high school is when everything changed and uh you're probably going to get there so i won't get too much into it but that's when I ended up in like my first hardcore band was in was in high school. Yeah, the next question would be what was your what your first band was? Did you so did you play drums in a band first? I did. I played drums in a band first, and I'll just before every, everybody's gonna everybody's already like trying starting to type like discogs.com probably. <laughs> but I uh, the, not, we never recorded anything. Okay. I was in a band called uh, <laughs> I was in a band called Surrounded. Okay, um, that's not a bad band name. Congratulations. Not a bad band name. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and I played drums, and it was just, um, it was four of us. It was me and my buddy Alex from, from high school, Alex Nakos. Um, shout out. There may be at least one person that knows Alex, because that's, <laughs> some, somebody out there that's listening to this knows that name. So shout out to Alex Nakos. Um, this guy, Angel, and this guy, Dave, um, Angel was the singer, and it was very much sort of emotive hardcore in like the lifetime okay. encount- encounter mixed with like New York hardcore kind of like sensibilities. So, so we were very much a band of that early '90s time. Totally, like this would have this would have been like 
not long after, probably this, the fall after I went to that U2 show. So I was probably like 15, 16. It was like 92, 93. So then what was the first? Did that band play a show, though? Okay, talk to me about that. We played first two show. shows. Talk to me about the, talk about the first one. Wow. Um, so it was very. You know, someone. <laughs> someone said this on. Um, I mean, to just bring everything full circle on one of the uh, Instagram posts about the Seisha shows. Someone. Someone made some comment about. Um, oh, uh, I, I think when we announced the, uh, the the show with no advance tickets, that that first show that I think we're going to see you at. Um, Someone made some comment about, oh, it's gonna is it's it's gonna be one of those deals where like someone sits outside with like a clipboard and they ask you like what band you're there to see or whatever and like <laughs> yeah. they they mark, tally it. You know, they yeah. tally it. So we played at this place called the Bond Street Cafe, and the heads in New York that are my age remember the Bond Street Cafe. I mean, everybody played there for a while. I mean, everybody from Marauder to like Orange Nine Millimeter to Shift to. I mean, it was the spot again. Yeah. It was the, it was other than C, it was like CB's wetlands and bond street cafe. And then the occasional thing at a place called the grand, which used to be called the Ritz. And you sure. don't have to go down that talk, talk for years about that nonsense. But, but nonetheless, we, they bond street cafe would give you these little like bookmark size flyers, um, with, with all the bands listed on them, uh, the week before the show. And so you would get your stack of flyers and you would circle your band name and give those flyers out to like people in your school or who, you know, your homies. And then you'd get, you'd, you'd hope that all those people showed up. And if they gave the, handed the flyer in at the door, that would be like your tally. So we, um, this sounds so alien. This, this sounds like someone telling the story about like going to buy the newspaper for like two cents at like, you know, <laughs> uphill, like, right. so, so, um, uh, so yeah, the first show we played, I think we opened for Shit, who played that show? I think it was Dog Eat Dog was the headliner. Incredible. I don't know if you know Dog Eat Dog. Yeah. Yeah. So if you've played it in was Europe, Dog Eat Dog. <laughs> if you've played it you played in Europe <laughs> if you played in a European hardcore festival and you've played with Dog Eat Dog. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, well we um we caught them we caught them on Bond Street. <laughs> Bond Street and Bowery, <laughs> like a probably a few years before they hit Europe but yeah so we um we played with Dog Eat Dog we were the openers um I got into uh, I took I had to take a cab from my house in Queens with all my drum equipment Jesus to down to the the show the car crashed on the way there oh my god yeah the taxi on the Williamsburg bridge if you go too fast, I don't know if it's still like this, but it used to be, me- it used to drive, half of it was like, you were driving over like steel. And so when it was raining, it was like an ice rink. And um, of course it, it had rained or the road was wet and this dude just took the bridge way too fast and he like, he fishtailed and I felt the side of the car just smash into the uh. the wall on the bridge. And I'm just like, what, what, could, what else could possibly go wrong? Right? Yeah. Like, so we ended up getting to the show and it, and it was very New York moment where like the guy, like the guy was still expecting like a tip, like after he crashed. So what did I do? I was 15. So I was like, all right, I tipped the guy. <laughs> so that was how the night started. And then, um, 
we played and it was fun and, and I hit all my parts and there was one fill that I was really scared about and I hit the fill and and after that I was just like, all right, I really smooth like smooth sailing, yeah. Smooth sailing and I really enjoyed just like the manic energy of it. It was like nothing I had ever experienced before. Like the like the most important takeaway of it wasn't like the music or the rest of the show. It was just like what kept really rattling around in my head was the exhilaration of just seeing people responding to something that we were doing collectively. And I had been on, by that point, I had gone to some shows, not many. I, I had started going to shows when I was 15. So 92 was when I was, this was probably like 93. So I'd only been going to shows for maybe a year. So as an audience member, you know, it's one thing. And, and, that, and you're sort of feeding off the band's energy and responding in that direction. But to be on the other side of it, was so much more exhilarating to me than being in the audience at that moment. And I was like, man, I, I really hope we keep doing this. And I think, I think we played like one more show that also went well. Um, I think Yuppicide might have headlined that one, which is legit like yeah. a notch on my belt. Like totally. I feel good about that one. That's sick. Um, <laughs> and, um, and I think Bulldoze may have played as well. I think we played with Bulldoze. Or I think we may have played that show with Bulldoze. Yeah, which is which is also wild to think about. But um, and that one went well. And then we just kind of, you know, As half the band, they were a year older than me. So yeah. when I hit junior year of, co of uh, high school, they were like out the door. You know, they were. Yeah. As seniors getting ready for college. That was kind of it, you know. So then what changed for you to want to grab the microphone and sing in a band? And was Seisha the first band that you sang in? Yes. Um, Seisha was the first band I sang in. I was always a writer. I, I always really loved writing. In school, I took, um, I, I, I was, similarly, what I was saying about sort of rhythm and melody, I, I don't know that they're mutually exclusive, but, but for me, rhythm made more sense. It was the same thing with the way my mind worked at school. You know, you have like the math and science kids, and then you have like the humanities and sort of art, art nerds and stuff. Needless to say, I, I fell very much into that latter category. And... I was writing and I was writing a lot of poetry. I was reading a ton of like Raina Maria Rilke and Akhmatova and like just Lu Lucille Clifton. Like I, I, I got heavy, heavy into poetry and I was like, I can do this. It like feels right. And I was already, so I was already sort of writing lyrics and before Seisha was even a thought, I had a lot of those Seisha lyrics were written at that time in high school where I was like, maybe I'll use these as lyrics someday, but nonetheless, like, I like what they are. Like, I feel like I'm using my voice. Like, I, I had felt like I had sort of found a voice for myself at that time. And um, that was it. And at that point, I was like, well, what do you do with the lyrics? I don't want to be the guy writing lyrics and someone else is singing, singing them. them. Yeah. Or screaming them or whatever. So at that point, it was like, okay, well, maybe... You know, the rest... I graduated high school and then got into college and then I, you know... Um, we can get into this, but, but I met the, the, you know, when I was at NYU and really sort of into hardcore going to shows, I was like, I really want to be the singer. I have so many lyrics. I have books and books of stuff. Um, and that was sort of it. And then the opportunity arose with meeting Jamie and Greg and those guys. And it was just like, okay, I guess, I guess we're going to give this a shot. Uh, it's funny. I don't, I don't know which one's going to, I think, It'll probably air after this, but actually just by chance the other day, I interviewed uh, Chris um, from Page 99, and I was asking Chris, I was like, you know, 
when the band was active and you guys were doing it, were you aware at the time that you were like a part of a scene that was different than everything else that was going on? And uh, he couldn't, you know, it was kind of hard for him to know, you know, at the time he was like, we were just, you know, kind of just doing it. And I was kind of curious how you felt about that. Like, could you tell the difference between the bands that you were coming up with and then other things that were happening? Like when you reflect on that, what do you think? Yeah, that's an interesting question, especially for New York City, because, you know, New York hardcore is this thing, yeah. right? So if you say you're in a hardcore band in New York, it doesn't matter what you sound like. Everybody just knows what that is going to be, or they think they know what that's going to be. At that time, again, this is sort of pre-internet. Um, so what I understood of the national scene, I understood when those bands came to town and and even beyond national, just sort of, if you want to even go smaller than that, just sort of like the regional scene. Um, I knew that there was more going on outside of our little circle in New York than I was seeing at like Bond Street Cafe, which was hyper, hyper local. And um, even Wetlands and CBGBs, like I wasn't, you know, if there were national bands coming through, there were there was a long you know there was probably a significant period of time where I didn't know who those bands were just because yeah I had to go see them to know who they were or read about them in a fanzine that I couldn't get until a touring band had that fanzine with them <laughs> you know at their merch table right. so it was so I I through Maximum Rock and Roll and the bigger zines I knew that stuff was happening right it was always like you you you, you could mail order some records or see a distro and get records and hear stuff. And so as I started to get more exposed to national, more national acts through places like ABC No Rio um, and more of like the punk, the DIY punk world that was like a little bit separate from like the Wetlands and CBGB's New York hardcore, moshy, you know, metally kind of stuff. Um, I was very aware that there, there was other stuff happening. You know, there was something really interesting in San Diego, right? Like something crazy was going on out there and you would get dribbles of it. This was pre-Heart Attack magazine too, right? So right. it was like, you know, Antioch Arrow got like crazy polarizing reviews and like maximum rock and roll. So I was immediately like, I want to hear that, right? Angel Hair, I was aware of them. I was like, that is mind bo- Like, I don't even know what, this, what I'm hearing right now, right? Yeah. Like, in, in Pennsylvania, you had, you know, Frail, and you had uh, the stuff that Scott Bybin was putting out on Bloodlink. You know, he brought Chokehold to my attention. And um, so, and Elements of Need, right? And, and that was the stuff that I was really latching on to. It was the stuff that just sounded like, like there was hardcore that was very well sort of orchestrated and put together, and these guys were like writing songs and had chops and like, but this other world was like, it was hard to even tell what these guys were playing. And it was just pure, it was pure adrenaline and emotion in a way that was different than the pure adrenaline and emotion of New York hardcore. It was like, to me, it was something so much more visceral, visceral, sorry. It was something so much more visceral. And like, these were like, it was more like these guys weren't angry. They were just like tormented. It was just like this, the screams were more of like the, this, I'm feeling this pain coming through. And the fact that these guys are playing like shit that is literally just demented. Like I can't even tell 
if the drummer and the guitar player and their bass player are all playing the same song. It's just abject chaos. And so this sort of emotional nature of that, that it was just like somebody exploding, right? It was just watching people have nervous breakdowns in real time is what yeah. it felt like. And, and, you know, I had had a tough adolescence and I, I, it just hit me really hard. Like when I heard the dude from Frail the first time, I was just like, fuck, like this, this dude is going through something. Like, they, like it's coming through. And the fact that, like, it's coming through is everything. Like, it's not even so much, like, what he's saying and what he's trying to tease out. It's more just that I am, like, he's kicking me in the gut with it. And it doesn't even matter at that point what he's saying. It's just, like, I feel like I'm feeling what he's feeling. And that, that's when I was like, that's, that is it. Like, that's what I want to be doing. I want to be making... I have all this shit that I need to get out, and I want other people to understand that this is shit that needs to come out. It's incredible that you're saying that because not to not to be a blow smoker kind of guy, but like with I'm sure it sounds like you're the same way where like I could put on a new band or like check out a band that I've never heard before. And I could tell pretty quickly as soon as I hear the vocals where I'm like, that person means it. You know what I'm saying? Like and, and that's so important because anyone can just yell into a microphone. But if you're yelling into a microphone, you hear like the voice cracking, you hear the little elements where you can tell like that person genuinely is going through something, blah, blah, blah. So when I first heard Seisha for the first time and I heard your vocals, I was just like, Jesus Christ, like that, that is honesty. You know, like there is something very pure happening here. And these vocals don't sound like anyone else's because it's just, you know, so over the top. You know what I'm saying? Like, I think your band was the first vocals that I heard where I, where I was like, that sounds like it hurts. But you know what I'm saying? Like, and but it, it's what made I think that that's what makes has always made Seisha stand out to people, especially when they hear it the first time where you're just like, Jesus Christ, that is so real. So it's wild to hear you describe frail that way. When I, I know I certainly can speak for myself and other people and be like, that's what I thought when I heard your band for the first time. I appreciate that. Uh, I, but that's why it sounds that way is because it, it did hurt. Um, which is interesting. I never really pulled that apart. We, I'll have to come back to that on my own sometime and really figure that one out. But um, I, 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 and I'm not picking on Frail. I just, yeah, they no. just happened to be the band that like did it for me at that totally. time. Um, but to me, I was like, that's good, but it, it could, ha it could be more than that. It could, yeah. I wanted, I want to be 10 times higher and 10 times louder. Yeah. And, um, I don't know that I, I, whether I achieved that part of it is, is, I mean, that was the motivation, but at the end of the day, that wasn't the, it was a means to an end. It wasn't like, yeah. If Seisha achieved anything, I, I don't look at that and say, yes, I, I hit that, <laughs> I hit that, that scream way higher. Like, I don't think of it like that, but that was really the motivation at the time. I was like, well, if I'm, if this feels like a gut punch to me, and I want to feel like a gut punch to other people. Maybe that gut punch needs to be like I'm driving a car, not punching now. Like maybe it needs to be, uh, it needs to be more extreme and just what I'm, what comes across, right? And how do I do that? And at the time, it was like it's, it's. I picked like the easiest thing, right? It's it's the it's the pitch and it's the the volume, right? That's that's what's going to be that does it. But over time, you realize that 
it's the dynamic for me at least it was more like it's the dynamics that do it right and I, and then i think that's that's the way the sort of style evolved it was like every word doesn't have to be like an ear piercing statement of just abject pain and sorrow you could exude that stuff or other types of emotion through the dynamics and the not giving people what they expect, keeping people sort of on their toes. And I think I try to do that with the vocals in Seisha. And I know just by virtue of the way Jamie writes the music and the different sort of temp, the weird tempos and the stuff that sounds off and the odd voicings and all that stuff that he, he, he does. I think it just, what is one of those things where we just kind of were able to play each other, play off each other in that way where it gave me the opportunity to experiment with those dynamics because he was constantly, you know, smacking his pedal and going quiet and going loud and then going sort of off and playing chords or then doing like noodly stuff. He sort of opened up my boundaries a little bit in doing that. And I felt more comfortable hearing him experiment and playing stuff that I didn't previously hear people doing in a lot of the music that we were listening to um, signaled to me that I could do that too. And so that's, I think, how the style just sort of evolved over time is that I, I felt more comfortable in what I was hearing sonically and gave myself a little bit more flexibility in figuring out creative ways to deliver that sort of emotional substance without just screeching, you know, for 40 minutes straight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so if Seisha was the first, was Seisha the first band that you recorded with? I'm assuming, obviously, right? So Seisha was the first band. Yeah. Yeah. So talk to me about your first recording experience. <laughs> this is great. So, um, so we met at NYU and the reason we met at NYU, uh, you know, other than we all went there, but, but, um, Thursday nights, there's a long running punk rock show on the radio station at NYU on WNYU called Crucial Chaos. Don't know if Crucial Chaos still exists anymore, but I was hearing Crucial Chaos. When I got into metal as a youngster, after rap came metal. Um, but when I got into metal, it was the same sort of thing. I was just up and down the dial, but on college radio stations now. So now my, you know, now I, I will get to the recording, but <laughs> stick with me. Yeah. There's context here. Um, in finding aggressive music, I happened upon NYU's radio station one night on a Thursday night when I was like 12, 13 years old, and boom, Crucial Chaos. I heard Bad Brains for the first time, and the rest is history. Crucial Chaos still existed when I went to NYU, and one of the first things I wanted to do when I got to NYU <laughs> was visit Crucial Chaos. Yeah. Um, and that's where I met Jamie and Steve. and Co I mean, we all met at the radio station, and... At that time, um, we also met a, a, a kid from Brooklyn named Justin Brannon, uh, who is in a band called Indecision, and uh, a, a, another band from Brooklyn who we met at the time through the radio station was a band called Shutdown, who did a, a record on Victory. They were sort of a straight-edge band. The reason I bring them up is because they all recorded their demo tapes with this guy, Ron, in Brooklyn. And we were talking about, you know, Seisha had like four or five songs and we're like, okay, it's time to make a tape because that's what you did, right? You did your demo tape. 
Okay, we're going to record a demo tape. Justin, where's Indecision recording? You know, shut down. Where do you guys go? Oh, you guys got to go to this dude, Ron. I, I don't remember if he was in, like, Bay Ridge. He was in, like, South Brooklyn. Recorded out of, like, his parents' house. He had, like, a studio in the basement. So it turned out to be this guy, Ron Thal. We recorded the demo with Ron Thal. And I just remember the first time I did my vocals, he stopped. He, st he like, stopped the recording was like, is that... Or they, or he asked the other guys. He's like, "Is he supposed to sound like that? Is like that? Like, is is he doing that on purpose?" Um, and that's the that's the demo tape that everybody knows is like the first seven inch. Yeah, uh, we yeah, recorded yeah. we recorded with Ron Thal in Brooklyn, and that was my first time ever recording with a band, and and um, yeah, it was it was it was an experience for Did sure. You guys do was it done in like uh, like one day? Was it because it was just the two songs? So was, it, was it like music live? Then you did the vocals on top, like. Yeah, it, uh, I want to say I, I want to say they recorded the you know Jamie and Colin and all those guys have so much more memory and Adam their memories are so much better than mine with a lot of these details. So they, they'll probably check me on this. I want to say we did the vocals. We didn't record it like like just live, where I was doing the vocals at the same time as the as the music. Mm -hmm. I, I think I think the music was recorded like I don't think people record like people didn't record to like a click track or anything. But I think they all played together. Um, but we but the vocals were done separately because I I I want to say like he like I said Ron was sort of asking those guys like what my problem was basically. <laughs> is this correct? Yeah. Yeah. Is this correct? Um, <laughs> But yeah, so it was, it, it, I recorded the vocals separately. Those guys, I was, so I was recording to what the band had played. Um, if, the, if that's what you're, yeah, that's yeah, what you yeah. meant. Yeah. Um, and then uh, what about for, because I was, I was doing like, you know, I was looking around, clicking around on stuff and I was looking at who, like, it seemed like you guys did recordings with different people every single time for like the seven inches and the LP and all of that. So like, um, when it the LP was the last thing that was recorded for the band, right? Because it was the two seven inches and then the LP. No, it was the LP was second, and then oh, the, the seven inches last. Okay, the seven inch was last. Yeah. Okay, um, so by the time you maybe got to that last seven inch, um, yeah. what by that by that point, like, how were you feeling about recording? Was were you more comfortable with it? Did you uh, like? What do you remember from that? I was always. Uh, I'm always more comfortable playing live than recording. I d I'm not like, I'm not a big studio guy when it comes to vocals. I'm not really into it because mm -hmm. I feel I I don't know if I don't know how you feel about. I mean, you're like you're an actual like professional, so like, I, I, you <laughs> you probably of. you exist you exist on a different sort of musical plane than 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 I ever did. Just in terms, and I mean that in just it, like in terms of like. Um, just like process and like prep preparation and all that kind of stuff. Like, like you probably have your way of like getting into the zone and like, you know, you've been through this a bunch of times and like, so, so for me, it's more just, I don't like, I, I this is going to sound really bratty, but I don't like all the waiting around. I don't like all the just like waiting sucks. Pick, yeah. Waiting sucks. And like everybody picking everything apart. And maybe this is just me like telling on ourselves or whatever, but like, I don't like to get in the weeds. Like I, when music starts to feel clinical, I start to check out yeah. and I feel like <clears throat> in a lot of ways as an observer, I really like the clinical part of it. Like as someone who sort of records music and makes music independently on my own now, like in my own home studio, I'm much more invested in process and the details and, and have a much better understanding of it. But in the band environment, 
I, when it starts to feel clinical, remember, like what we were saying, you know, the the whole attraction to hardcore and the style of music that we ended up playing was just that it's just this, it's just pure emotion and adrenaline, right? It's just, it's a moment in time, right? It's like if you catch that amazing show that night, it's like it's that amazing show that night, right? Like, yeah. You're going to play other good shows, but there's those shows that like stand out and it's because like all those things were like clicking. But the, but the cool thing about it is like the next night you have the opportunity to like top that in real time. Like, and there's a number of things that may happen between like the previous show and that show that like change your mood or get you more focused or less focused. And, and you have those happy accidents sometimes. Like to me, that's what's most exhilarating about hardcore and punk. It's like, you you may you're all amped for a show and then you get you get there and it's like seven paid right and you're like all right well I'm still I'm still gonna go balls out because I'm just I got myself here. there yeah you're there so the to me that is the whole reason I got into punk and hardcore and wanting to perform it and go out and tour and do all that stuff was because of those uncertainties every night right it's like the uncertainty of what's going to happen and what you're going to get and where you're going to end up is like the attraction um and is really like feeds into the emotion of it the studio is just a very planned orchestrated timed like exercise in just repetition you know what i mean it's like really great bands are able to capture that emotion in a recording but people don't understand like how for me at least, like how singularly challenging it is to play aggressive music with a really physical show and try to capture that energy like in an afternoon in a studio environment when you're tired and maybe you've been listening to the same guitar part like 37 times over the last like four days. Like it, it's, it becomes like such a challenge and, and the people who are most brilliant in the studio recording that's that you know aggressive music and being able to bands that are able to capture that like in a studio to me is just like the holy grail for this kind of stuff and so the studio experience was never like my thing like it was fun i like hanging out with the guys and like you know you you have great memories of it and it's like cool and it's something that you document and it's wonderful but it's a little too choreographed and planned and scripted for me to, to really get to be as jazzed on it that I, than as I am on just the live atmosphere. Yeah, no, I totally, I totally get it. And, um, so the first, I was curious with that first seven inch, the demo that was seven inch, like obviously that's level plane one. So it's like a self released basically. Cause it's Greg Trudy's, thing um what was the motivation there did you have interest in trying to make another label put it out or were you just like fuck it we should do this ourselves fuck it we should do this ourselves i mean we we were we were very much in that diy mindset um we we considered that really really important to us we ended up with mountain because they had the same mindset they were like you know chris jensen was kind of just an extension of us like all the kids from Long Island that we're now like lifelong friends with like you know the kids that ended up in States of Seeds and Edgar and uh, you know all all those bands from Long Island Closure that little ecosystem we just kind of it was just very organic for us to kind of end up with those bands Evola you know all these bands that was like our scene and it was sort of focused on mountain so 
so for us to be on mountain, it felt that oh, that also felt self-released because of just right. the community we were in. So yeah, I just say that to say, you know, we were extraordinarily DIY minded. We didn't want to. We didn't want other people telling us we sucked or we were good. We didn't care. We were, you know, we were very self-driven. You know, we wanted to play shows. We wanted to have music out there. We wanted to just kind of do it. We wanted to emulate all of the other shit that we saw nationally that we didn't think really existed in New York other than, you know, out in Long Island. But where we were in Manhattan, we didn't feel like we were, we had, you know, the frails, the elements of needs, that like the, those bands came through, but there, the, we didn't feel like there was, there were many bands like that, like of that ilk, you know, in the city. And so that's what we wanted to do, you know, and so we, um, we d we just decided like we're, well if if we're gonna if it's gonna happen we're gonna have to do it ourselves. So. And then when you ended up doing the second seven inch, you did that on Witching Hour, which is like a late, which is a label out of like Indianapolis. Like what uh, was that just you you were friends with those guys? Maybe you met some of those the bands that affiliated on that while you were playing shows because you know that was like a lot of the screamo bands from yeah. different parts of the country as well. So right. like. Was it a, or was it like maybe if we play, do it on a label that's not in New York, it'll get to some new people? Like, what was the thoughts there? I, I think we just really liked Witching Hour. It was, I think it was Chris, right? From Race yeah. Bannon. Um, yeah. We just met him through like Race Bannon and stuff, and we love those guys. And, um, you know, uh, well, actually, I want to say, was Witching Hour previous to Race? Maybe Witching Hour preceded race bannon um uh, yeah i think it must have i i you know i that connection must have happened through greg and i would not be surprised if he was sort of carrying witching hour records and it just kind of like happened that way at the time mm -hmm. i gotta get my i like i said my memory is is pretty shot um and my chronology is off so i apologize but i want to say that greg sort of made that connection with with chris at the time um and that just kind of came to be it's it's just one of these things that's so fascinating to me. It's like it's similar to what I was even saying with with Chris when I on when I talked to him the other day. It's like for a scene that existed very very strong for like a couple years. It's just fascinating that like these labels that were started and all these bands put records out on all these labels, whether it was Level Plane, Witching Hour, uh, at the time Robo Dog, pre Robotic Empire. Um, uh, magic bullet like there or happy couples never last like there's all these labels that, yeah all these labels that like came, like alone all these labels that like came up and all these bands were just like all doing it at the exact same time and time moves at such an interesting pace these days where things just fly by you know it's like all of a sudden it's now already 2022 whereas like this was like 98 to 2001 and all of this happened um so i, I guess yeah kind of back to even what i was talking about before like maybe by the time it got to like 2000, um, we uh, kind of back to that same question. Like, did you notice this all happening? And did you, did you feel like you were a part of a community? No, actually. And, and I'll tell you why. Um, Seisha broke up in 99. Mm -hmm. And then I moved to London um, in like 2000. And I didn't, uh, we we did a band called She's Hit for a little while. Me and Jay from Orchid was in New York. Um, he had moved to New York. 
and so we linked up with him when when he moved to New York. And so I, we had a short a short lived band together with this, with uh, folks from Sasha and um, did that Jay Green. I can't believe I've never even heard that. There's no that. recording. Yeah, we played at a uh, we played at one show, or two shows maybe. Was it I mean, the same played... style of music or what was? Yeah, it, it was very it was very like San Diego, just chaotic, like just noise, just absolute, just it was. Whatever, like if you stripped all the melody out of Seisha and just had like a lot of feedback, it was it was it, on those like sort of like Honeywell kind yeah. of ish, like just like turning a. Somebody once described um, Honeywell as like turning a TV to like a channel you don't get, and you just get that. <laughs> yeah, right. Which is like ac- which is accurate in a good way, and I think I think we were in that we were of that sort but of. But it was it was you and and. The singer of Orchid. Jay Green. Yeah. yeah. But were you both doing vocals? No. Uh, no, I was doing vocals. I think Jay was playing guitar. Jay, were you playing guitar? I think Jay was Jay was playing guitar. Okay. And uh, Greg was playing drums. This guy, Paul, was playing bass. Who played guitar? Who played? Matt Smith. Matt Smith played in the band, too. So it was like pre-Hot Cross. It was actually more Hot Cross and Orchid. <laughs> well, yeah. Hot Cross, Hot Cross with Jay, basically. And this guy, Paul. And then I, and then so after that, we played one show. We played Easton Fest in Easton, Pennsylvania. And I know some folks were there, and actually, we still get questions about Cheese Hit. <laughs> uh, wow. So, yeah. we, uh, so, so that happened, and then I moved to London. And I would, lived in London from like fall of 2000 to almost fall of 2001. I moved back from London like two weeks before, or maybe like, Couple, more than that, maybe a couple months before um, 9-11. Um, so when I was in London, when I got back, there was like a buzz. Like, like this thing had happened. Um, and all of a sudden, Level Plane was like a thing. Like people were up Greg's ass at that point. And Seisha, like people were like talking about Seisha. Um it was the very sort of beginning stages of what the aughts turned into, which which is what yeah. I think was like the screamo like free for all. Right. Um so I it was it was like lightning in a bottle had started and like I missed the whole first part of it. Like I think like Skylab, you remember Skylab? I don't know oh, if you like remember the, Skylab the on the board, internet. Yeah. The, yeah, so like the Skylab message board and like this is where kids were starting to talk. You know, that's when social networking and... Uh, it was like record trading know, and all of that. It was like record like, trading. Yeah, totally. That's, that's when that shit really started. And I missed the whole start of it. I, when I got back, it was like in full swing. Like well, it's funny you say you missed the start of it when you, when you were the building... You are part of the building blocks of it. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, but, it, but, but you have to understand, like, until, until that stuff... Until kids started to talk on the internet like that, like... No one gave a fuck about Seisha, especially outside of New York. Like, New York, like, AB, people that went to ABC No Rio, like, knew us. And that right. was, like, the extent of it. But, like, outside of that, there was not much, like, talk or care or anything. No one really gave a shit. So the fact that people outside of New York, even if it was, like, 20 people, but the fact that, like, 20 people outside of New York were talking about Seisha now, to me, I was like, holy fuck, we blew up. Like, what is <laughs> happening? Like, um... So, 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 so yeah, but I missed, like, I feel like a lot of it really got started when I was overseas and I, I didn't appreciate what, it. Uh, 
what was the longest tour that Seisha did? We did a full U.S. tour with Usurp Synapse, but it was only that one. That was the longest tour we did. So you played in Southern California. We did. Wow. Do you remember any? Do you remember any details? Where was it? Yeah, we played at PCH with Volume Eleven, Locust, uh, Arab on Radar. Oh my God! It was a horrible experience. It was a horrible experience. <laughs> it's horrible. Tell me why? Tell me why? <laughs> it was. It was very much sort of like the cult of 3-1-G San Diego was happening at that time. And I say that with all due respect because we were very much fixated on it as well. But we did not fit into that world. Like we did not have like the hair and the clothes and like and I I, want to say this to say that the music coming out of there at the time was beyond influential to me and was genius. Like to me, those early like the first time I saw Locust, I was just like everything else just felt immediately obsolete to me in that world. It just, it was just pure power. Like it was like nothing I had seen before. And they were really like, they were just intimidating. Like the whole aloof thing was very much um, confrontational and intimidating at a time when people were like hugging each other a lot and stuff. It was like, it was something that was different. And so we were more of like the hugging people. So we, we played the show at PCH with them in volume 11 and we felt like we were very much infringing. It, it felt like a party we, we were not invited to. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it was yeah. just not, it was not us. It didn't feel like us. And, and we felt really alienated there. And that's, that's on, I mean, that's on us. There was no one that went out of their way to make us feel uncomfortable. It's just easy to convince yourself of that, too, because you're, from, you're the out-of-towners. We were the out-of-towners. And also, there was also no one that went out of their way to, to, to it felt like, to make us feel, feel welcome. really comfortable. And yeah. everywhere else, it was like, you know, the, the, the DIY scene at that time, I just felt, was, like, very friendly and wonderful. Like, everywhere we went, no one knew who we were, but we were just treated as, like, a touring band. And, like, there was, you know, we always had a group of people that understood what that was. But that sh- that show really stands out as one of like you know, you, sell, you tell people the lineup and you're like, holy what fuck, what the fuck, yeah, yeah. But it was really like not an enjoyable show for us at all. It was just like we just felt very much like out of our element, and and we were we were the square pegs. Like everybody there was the round hole. We were the square pegs. We got that, but it was just it doesn't make it less frustrating when you've when you've come that far and you're like, holy fuck, we're like playing Southern California for the first time, and like that's the show. Yeah, how many shows in California did you do? Um, did you do like San Diego? Did you do like Shea Cafe? Yeah, we played Half Moon Bay. This video wow. of us horsing yep. around um, that I'm sure everybody's seen. We played. I wanted. To, yeah, I'm almost positive we played Shea. Someone was talking about this on the internet. I'm. I'm pretty sure we played Shea Cafe. I'm sure someone will be able to guarantee that. Um, I don't know that we got. I don't. I want to say we played at Gilman, but I cannot remember if we actually made it to Gilman or if we just played Half Moon Bay. Hot Cross played Gilman a few times. Um, I can't remember if Seisha played at Gilman. But we did, I want to say we, we did San Diego probably, we probably did more than one show in L.A. We probably did a couple shows in L.A. or Southern California. I want to say we probably played, we played Northern California. We probably played like five or six shows in California altogether, I want to okay. say. Um, what do you remember from that first tour? Did you enjoy it? Were you excited about being on tour? Yeah. Yeah, it was... 
it was it was a good experience. It 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 got me realizing like you can just do this kind of thing. Yeah. You know, we did like little regional things before that, but doing like a full like go driving across the country and back is just like we had an ill-fated tour in 98. We just didn't go on it. Like the whole tour got can- Yeah. <laughs> the whole tour got canceled. So we like it it still was like a pipe dream when we actually did it. It felt like it. And so to just see it come to fruition was really gratifying. And like, you know, at the time I was 22, you know what I mean? So like life was still very much in front of me. Yeah. You know? Like there was more of it in front of me than behind me. So totally. So it was just like fuck it. Yeah, let's let's just go let's go do it. I have like, I think I have like $300 in the bank. Like that should get me somewhere. Right. Yeah, like eat some fast food yeah. somehow. Yeah. yeah. Eat lots of subway and just like hope for the best. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I wanted to, uh, so, you know, stage stops playing, you move to London, you come back. So then when hot cross started, were at that point, you're talking about the buzz, you know, the sky labs, the Viva la vinyl, like all of that stuff is now like all happening. Um, when you when that band started, uh, and I, you know it was kind of a to use the term super group because it was members of Seisha, Neil Perry, and you and I, kind of all in that band together. Like, um, what was that like when that band started? And like, did you feel the excitement around it when you first put out the that first ten inch? Yeah, people people were definitely more excited about Hot Cross when Hot Cross started than they were about Seisha when Seisha ended. Um, so that, that, that was sort of still my disconnect because, because as the story said on the level plane website, you know, ages ago, I moved back, I moved back to New York on a Wednesday, had my first practice with a band on Thursday and then played my first show with the band on Friday. That's, that's like really how it happened. Like all the music, all those songs were already written. I wrote the lyrics in London and had never practiced the lyrics with the band um, other than like a day before the first show. I was just playing from recordings. I was plotting, I was sort of placing the, the lyrics and figuring out the vocals to recordings. So, so, so getting back to what you asked before, so this whole thing with Seisha being far in different places, like... yeah. That shit's old hat. Yeah, like me, you know, you me know having to works. do vocal. Yeah, yeah, me having to do vocal stuff on my own is like you know something I've done. So, so, so that's really how it went. So, I, I was, I was really amazed that that people were even watching Hot Cross. Not not because I thought we were bad or because I, you know, I had low expectations. But in my experience previous to that, like you know, when Sasha started, it was just you know, it was our college homies. Like you know, but. Now, you know, my first show with Hot Cross was in Philly, so it wasn't even in New York. Like, I didn't even know anyone there, right? So, um, I remember just like the lore around it when it was starting, because like at that yeah. point, I had, I was a fan of of Station and all that stuff. But like, you know, I missed you obviously out on the West Coast. But then I saw the first the first Hot Cross show in California, which was at Shea Cafe, and I'm, I went. We, me and my friends drove all the way down there because you weren't playing L.A. on that. The closest you were coming was San Diego. So, like, me and a bunch of friends came down there. We were definitely the kids in the corner being like, holy fuck, dude. Holy fuck. Like, holy fuck, dude. Uh, and it was just such a thrill getting to see you play and getting to see everyone, you know, in that band play. Um, what uh, And, you know, this is like a big jumping ahead thing. But, you know, you put out a, you put out a bunch of records on Level Plane. But something I'm fascinated by is you guys ended up putting out a record on a subsidiary of Equal Vision that was like short lived called Hope Division. 
talk to me about that experience because we've seen this happen before where a label starts a subsidiary maybe they want to try to do something different and then it doesn't last very long what what was your experience with that how did they sell you on that i was just one of those things i've always been curious by yeah so this guy dan that was at equal vision was like real into the band um and he just sort of reached out and uh started talking to greg um and we were reaching a point where Greg Greg started to feel that the band was starting to outsize what he could do at level plane for the band. Um, things were just kind of moving in that direction. Like we were starting to like we, we for us, it was like that moment when you have booking agents of like significantly larger bands, like reaching out to you to see if you can do like, you know, a week on some huge national like package tour. And, and, and that was ha- that we were getting, you know, the days of package tours. We, we were starting to get those kind of communications through the label and stuff. And we were like, all right, you know, what, what are we going to do about this? Like, do we want to, do we want to see what happens if we open this up beyond like the basement? Totally. DIY scene or do we just want to stay in the basement DIY scene and sort of potentially just kind of outstay our welcome because not that it's fickle, but it's like, that's just where you're going to be forever. We felt like, we felt like it was like the next step up to play to more people was like going to be a significant step up. And we had to figure out like what we wanted to do. And as we were sort of just talking about what that meant, that's when Dan reached out and that's, that sort of got the ball rolling and we were like, well, this is interesting because we were literally just talking having this about exact this conversation. Yeah. So and we decided, Hey, you know, Dan was a sound guy, like just really, really good dude. Like we could tell he had a genuine interest in the band. He didn't bullshit us about what it was going to be or what it wasn't going to be. He was very straightforward, you know, we spent a lot of months talking, you know, it's, it's not something that happened like right away. It was, it took my, my memory serves correct. It took a while for us to kind of get there. And we felt like it was like a huge decision because up until that point, like I, like you sort of pointed out, like everything was pretty much us. We put out everything we did other than like occasionally, like we'd work with a friend, you know, who did a label or was doing a split or, or something like that. Of course. Yeah. but for the most part, we did everything. You know, Greg did everything. So it was, that was a huge, huge, huge decision. Just the sort the of trust. like. Yeah. The trust. Like, th- these people are going to write us a check to go, like, make something. Like. Yeah. But they're writing the, a check. Yeah. <laughs> like, they, they, like, you're immediately, immediately, like, relinquishing something. Right. You know, by right? The way, There's, by, you're, you're trading something for that. By the way, I also love the move of, yeah, they're writing a check, but you're smart because you had a member of the band record the record. Right. Well, <laughs> yes. Well, we, that's a long story, too, because um, we actually recorded it with someone else at first and then spent a lot of the... We, we didn't have a choice. We, we spent the money oh. on, a rec- on, a, on a recording that didn't... And we just... The Scrapped label it. had issues with it, and we ended up scrapping it. And Interesting. So, and so that's why we ended up. So we didn't, we didn't pocket anything. We paid, you know, we paid our, our buddy who recorded it. We paid him, 
and we, you know, went started through all over. the motions of that and had to start over. Yeah, wow. and we had to start over with with pretty much was zero. There, so. Was there any silver linings to starting over? Where was there like, well, actually, I'm kind of glad now I can fix this one thing that I was maybe unsure of, or was it like kind of could you a b the two of them and the songs are the exact same, just sonically different? Yeah, I don't know that there, there was a silver lining. I. I it was really, I, it was, for me, it was a really shitty experience. Like, it sure. was just really bad. Uh, just because, for not even who, for myself. <laughs> for someone who doesn't but, like the studio that much to be like, hey, you know how you just finished that thing? You want to start, from, oh, you start was, from scratch again? <laughs> <laughs> that's a great, that's a great, that's a really great point. But I, I, I didn't even, I, I didn't even consider, I mean, that sucked too. But I, but um, more in the sense that like the, the original recording was done by, you know, a close personal friend at the time. And I, I, it was just really painful to have to break the news that we had a, that we were going to start again, that we were making a decision to start again. That really fucking sucked. Uh, So for me, there was really no silver lining. I, I just, you know, I may, there may have been little tweaks that I made to what I was doing, but you know, we had those songs pretty, pretty locked down from our perspective, from a structural stand, maybe not from a performance standpoint, but from a structural standpoint, we thought like, so I didn't, I didn't move what I was doing around so much. So for me, it was just doing it over. Damn. That's too bad. Um, yeah, Jesus. That's yeah. That's, that's uncomfortable for a lot of reasons, but, um, I love that. I, totally love that record i think it's it's it sonically sounds awesome like what josh did was super cool um thank you yeah absolutely uh well shit i feel like i could probably uh punish you all day with random nerd questions like that so i'm just gonna i'll just do that uh maybe another time but i was gonna hit you with the last question which is um when was the last time or last time when was the first time that you felt like you were doing the thing you'd been working so hard towards <laughs> I I, th- I actually th- I actually think it was Seisha. I actually think it was Seisha was the first time I felt like I had done something that I had been gearing up to do because of the it was really just the writing. It was like something I something's got to happen with this stuff kind of thing and it was a legacy thing and it was like I've really I felt like I had really captured myself at different phases of my life up until that point in my opinion. And so the ability to sort of s- scream through it and kind of offer some closure to myself on some of the things that were driving what I was singing about and who I was singing about, um, that was really important. Uh, that, was, that was a really important thing that I was able to experience, um, especially at that time in my life. So I would, I would say that was the first time that that happened. That was... Definitely the first time that that happened musically. Oh, you know what I mean? Uh, but, yeah. But, but yeah, I think just in a continuum of life, just in a lifeline as well, I think that's the first time where I felt that I had created something that was fulfilling to me. Right on. Right on. I love that. And now we get to yeah. feel, maybe potentially feel that again. <laughs> I, I, I hope you all do. I, I certainly will. I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. Uh, thank you, Billy. I appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. That 
is our show. Thank you so much to Billy for coming on, and thank you for listening. Reminder, there's a bonus episode available right now if you go over to patreon.com slash the first ever Patreon and subscribe to the show. Take care. I'll see you next week. Be good. Bye-bye.